Good morning, and happy Mother's Day again. Uh, and just so you know, we when we plan out this sermon calendar and we're figuring out which weeks we're covering which topics, uh, we just kind of lay it out. And I knew that this was going to be, right where we are in Revelation, is going to be a little bit of a, a rough stretch, only because the text is heavy. And uh, only later do we realize Mother's Day and these texts on judgment fall on the same day. Um, and I don't know what to tell you about that. We got some kids in here that are like, well, that makes sense. Um, but, uh, you know, we wouldn't have planned it that way. Uh, but it is, it is what it is. And as we go through the text of Revelation, it's clear. And, and through the Bible itself, there's parts in the Bible where it, they just make you feel like you want to close your eyes, like you don't want to read it, like this is hard. Uh, and just because something is hard doesn't mean that it's not good for us to read. It's not good for us to pay attention to. And there's some clear warnings in the, in the book of Revelation. Uh, and we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at some of those this morning, and particularly the, the judgment of God, as we see in Revelations 14 uh, through 16. And, uh, and Ben was right. We are over halfway through. And by the end of this morning, we're done chapter 16. And then uh, we can see the finish line. We are, we are getting there. So uh, again, this is called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, or more literally, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book that John gives uh, to seven churches in modern-day Asia, minor, modern-day uh, Turkey, sorry. And these churches uh, he wrote in, to, in the first century who were under the Roman Empire, the Roman rule. And this is critically important for how we understand the imagery and the metaphors and the messages of Revelation. It is written, written to a particular church at a particular point in time with timeless principles that still apply to us today. And so as we look at the original context and what those churches were going through, what this meant for them, we read this today and look at the principles and say, oh my goodness, some of these things are timeless. Some of the things that God was doing, he's still doing. Some of the promises or the promises that God did give then still apply today. And we are still waiting um, in the same way between the first and second coming of Jesus as the, the early church was. And so we join in those churches in reading the book of Revelation and being challenged by it. Uh, being woken up by it uh, from our slumber, uh, being encouraged by it because uh, Jesus is on the throne. And that's what the ap- term apocalypse means. It's, it's just simply a revealing and uncovering of what is really true. And so apocalypse is a neutral term. It's neither good nor bad. Uh, the goodness or the badness of it actually is seen when we uncover what's happening. So when we use the term uh, negatively, we say this is apocalyptic weather, and we think of all the fires going on in Alberta right now. Uh, I sh- you know, was chatting with a friend of mine last week, and he was showing me pictures. He was there. He said, this looks apocalyptic, doesn't it? And I said, well, not really. Uh, it looks really bad. It's not necessarily apocalyptic because it might not necessarily tell us what's behind. Um, and so we look at the why or what's behind, then we could say that's apocalyptic because it's revealing. And so when John writes, uh, he is given this apocalyptic vision from Jesus, we don't know uh, what's behind it. John's people don't know what's behind what they're going through. They're just wondering if Jesus is king, if Jesus was who he said he was, if the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth, and if his death and resurrection means victory for the church, if it means uh, the promises of God are actually coming into the present, then why is all of this happening? Why are we under Roman oppression? Why are we suffering? Why, is, why are people being martyred? Why are people being forced to worship Caesar? This is the world that John is writing into. And so they're asking, why? What do we do? Why is this happening? And the, the apocalypse of Jesus, written in apocalyptic literature style, 
which is full of metaphors, uh, is given to encourage the church and to open their eyes. And we're, we're reminded by Eugene Peterson that there's nothing that we read in the book of Revelation that we all haven't already read somewhere else in the Bible. But there's a new way that we haven't read it. And so John is telling timeless truths again to the church. Uh, Jesus is giving timeless truths to John through uh, this apocalyptic vision. John is writing this. He's on the island of Patmos and he's there because he believed that Jesus was the king of kings, the Caesar of all Caesars, the Lord of lords. And he was unwilling to bow his knee, even though the Roman Empire was saying, you must bow your knee to Caesar. We don't care what other gods you worship, uh, but you have to worship Caesar. And John says, there is only one God. There's only one God. And this one God came in the flesh in human form and uh, he lived a sinless life and he died on the sins for the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And he was raised to life on the third day to show that he's conquered evil and that he's conquered death. And because of that, I am giving my life to him. Because of that, I know without a doubt that even death cannot separate me from the love of God and the plan of God in my life. And so John had this bold confidence. Because of that, he finds himself on the island of Patmos and he's held there in isolation and exile. But while he's there, he's writing this letter to the churches who are under Roman oppression, churches that are figuring out how do we follow Jesus in this time? How do we follow Jesus when the world is not following Jesus? How do we follow Jesus when this world says there are many gods and you can just pick your gods, but you have to worship these gods? How do we actually worship Jesus and follow him the way that he's called us to? Uh, and so some churches were compromising, trying to play the middle ground. Some were assimilating. They were taking on the the culture of the empire um, and saying, well, you know, obviously Jesus doesn't want us to die. And so we're going to actually just take on all the cultural values that, that are in Rome and we'll worship whoever they tell us to worship. And some of the churches are saying, no, we're only going to worship Jesus. And those churches ended up suffering for their faith. And so John's writing to those churches in this context. And that brings us to Revelation chapter 14. And so if we remember last week, we talked about the uh, the dragon and the two beasts, right? And the dragon representing Satan, the devil, the accuser, the deceiver who comes, uh, who hates Jesus. And he hates Jesus, uh, but Jesus is already victorious. And we know that he can't touch Jesus, but he can bring pain to Jesus by uh, hurting those whom Jesus loves. And so the dragon comes after people. The dragon comes after the church, the people of God. But he doesn't do this directly. He comes through the two beasts, the beast of the sea, the beast of the earth, the beast of the sea representing uh, political power that's been manipulated by the dragon and the beast of the earth representing religious power that's been manipulated by the dragon. And we see throughout history, we see in the New Testament, we see in our time that political power is often propagated by religious fervor. Jesus was crucified because the religious leaders wanted to crucify him and breathed life into the political empire of Rome to crucify Jesus. And so we need to be very aware that the, the, the political world and even the religious world, in particular the religious world, who is advocating a different way other than the lamb, when, they, when those two come together, it gets very, very ugly. And we can see that even in our time. And so this is what we read in Revelation 13, and that brings us to Revelation 14. And let me read the text for you. It says, Then I saw a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Remember, this is the same imagery we saw of the beast last week. Uh, but now we see people that are being marked uh, with the father's name on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of a mighty ocean waves or the rolling 
of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. And so this number 144,000, if you remember from Revelation 7, uh, is a symbolic number. You know, many people in different, uh, you know, religious branches have tried to interpret this number literally through the years, but all the numbers in Revelation are symbolic. And this number is simply 12 times 12 times 1,000, uh, 12 being a symbolic number throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the Bible, representing the 12 tribes, representing the 12 apostles, uh, those before uh, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, those after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and 144,000, multiplying that by 1,000, means that this is a large group of people representing the people of God. And we even remember in Revelation 7, when John hears the 144,000, he turns and sees a great multitude that was in, that was, he was unable to count. And so the number represents this mass of people that John was not able to count that had been redeemed because they'd given their lives to Jesus and they're following the way of the land. And so these 144,000 are the ones who had uh, the name of God on their foreheads. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. And if you're wondering what all those references are in that first sentence, we've talked about that earlier in the series. So we're not going to go back and do it. Uh, but we did cover that in other weeks. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins, following the Lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as special offering to God and to the Lamb. They have told no lies and they were without blame. And so they're saying that these 144,000 have never had sex. Is that what this is saying? They're virgins. No, that's not what it's saying. Uh, again, this is symbolic imagery as we're going to see as we move through the next few weeks in Revelation that, uh, that the, God is calling the people uh, to actually stop committing adultery with the empire of Rome, uh, which he's going to refer to as Babylon, which we'll see in a second. And so this adulterous type of uh, relationship is how God has viewed idolatry throughout Scripture, and, and it's, he's doing it again here in Revelation. So idolatry is idolatry. Idolatry is idolatry. Um, the people of God cheating on God with other gods. And so these 144,000, they haven't worshipped other gods. They're giving their worship solely to Jesus. They've been purchased because of the, through the blood, the sacrifice, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And they have told no lies or without blame. They're blameless. Why? Well, if you remember, this, these 144,000, uh, you know, they're wearing a sackcloth. They are people who are humble. They're people who are repentant. They're people um, who, because they actually became humble and gave their lives to Jesus, God has made them blameless. And so they're there blameless um, as the people of God because of what Jesus has done, not because they, uh, of what they have done. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying the eternal good news. Everybody say good news. So this is the good news apocalypse. Remember that. So the good news proclaimed to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all the springs of water. Then another angel followed him through the sky, shouting, Babylon has fallen. The great city has fallen because she made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. And we haven't talked about Babylon yet. 
and we're not going to talk about it much this morning. Uh, it's going to dominate the next couple of weeks. It's a major theme in the book of Revelation, and it, it gets introduced for the first time here in Revelation chapter 14. Um, and to understand the book of Revelation, we have to understand Babylon, but for our time right now, it's just important to note that Babylon is a word that describes the dragon-manipulated political powers, the empires that have moved God out of the center. For the people at this time that were reading it, Babylon was a clear reference to the empire of Rome. So Babylon has fallen. It's saying that Rome has fallen. She has made all the nations of the world drink the wine of her passionate immorality. And then we'll see that Babylon is not just referring to Rome, but as we'll look at next week, it's, it's referring to every uh, cultural political empire that is trying to uh, move forward without God in its center. Then a third of the angel followed them shouting, anyone who worships the beast and his statue or who accepts his mark on the forehead or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It has been poured full strength into God's cup of wrath and they will be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshiped the beast and his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. Happy Mother's Day. Um, again, there, we'll see these texts are uncomfortable. The, image is strong, the imagery is strong. What we're not allowed to do as we read these texts is conclude from all this that either John or we or anybody else know exactly uh, who comes into these categories in these verses 9 to 11. Uh, these things are in themselves symbolic, and, and this is a critical point as we think about judgment text, particularly in the book of Revelation, uh, where throughout history, people have loved to take, in, uh, to take some of these imageries and symbols and we interpret them literally, but we interpret other things symbolically. And you'll notice that texts in themselves are written in a context, in a particular style, and they're typically consistent in how they use those images and symbols throughout the text itself. And so what we're seeing here is a description it's not a literal description, but it's a symbolic description that there is judgment for those who are not part of the 144,000, for those who are not God's people, for those who have not repented and bended their knee to the way of Jesus. And the imagery is meant to startle us and bother us and spark us. John is eager anxiously to prevent anyone from being sucked down into the dark whirlpool of wrath to share in the destiny of the dragon and the beasts. And saying, you don't want to go there. You don't want to be a part of their destiny. And this means that God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit. They are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds will follow them. And so this is critical. The people of God are not asked to be the judge. And this consists in the New Testament. Earlier in, in this chapter, we read that Jesus, it's, it's time for Jesus to judge. There's a time when God is going to judge. But at no point do we see that as our role to judge. God's people, their role here is to endure persecution patiently, to obey God's commands and follow the way of the Lamb, and to maintain their faith in Jesus, to not lose heart, to not lose hope, to believe that the story isn't yet finished. 
And I saw on a white cloud and seated on the cloud was someone like the son of man. He had a gold crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. But another angel came from the temple and shouted to the one sitting on the cloud, swing the sickle for the time of harvest has come. The crop on earth is ripe. So the one sitting on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the whole earth was harvested. And this, was, this is a positive imagery of harvest, of God gathering his people. And we have a negative image of har- harvest. After that, another angel came to the temple in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. And the other angel who had the power to destroy with fire came from the altar. He shouted to the angel with the sharp sickle, swing your sickle now to gather the clusters of grapes from the vines of the earth for they are ripe for judgment. So the angel swung a sickle over the earth and loaded the grapes into the great winepress of God's wrath. The grapes were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress in a stream about 180 miles long and as high as a horse's bridle. And as you go on, as you read the text, you'll realize the hard images, these difficult judgment uh, texts don't end there. And we'll see as you go into Revelation chapter 16, uh, that it's ongoing. So just bear with me a second. As you go into Revelation 16, we're not going to read the chap- chapter 16 as well, but we, we get more of the same picture. And we know from our previous weeks that we get to the end of the world as we know it six different times through the book of Revelation. Uh, and so there's this, this cycle that goes through the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is not chronicle, chronological. We are seeing the same historic events that are repeated over and over and over again. And we come to the end of the world as we know it number of times throughout the text. And so right when we're startled and bothered and, you know, we've woken up, John brings us to the heavenly throne room and we see images of worship and celebration. And so there's, there's this dance that's going on through the book. Dance of judgment, the dance of uh, the reality of the hard things that are going on in the earth under the empire of Rome. But there's also promise and then there's also celebration. There's also a looking forward to uh, when all of creation uh, is worshiping God. And so we know uh, that now that we get to the seven bowls of Revelation 16, that we're in another cycle. The previous cycles uh, were partial in their judgment, but when we get to the end of the, the bowls, the seven bowls of Revelation 16, we realize that they are final in their judgment, that God is bringing history as we know it to its conclusion. In Revelation 16, the excess plagues are repeated Again, like they were earlier, but this time uh, it's final and it's cosmic. And so there's three sets of seven, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, and the seals and the trumpets, again, were partial. When we get to the bowls, the seventh bowl, it's final. And this text and these texts are intended to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Everybody say comfort the afflicted. Afflict the comfortable. This is what it is designed to do. And so if you're comfortable, these texts are meant to startle you. If you're afflicted, these texts are meant to encourage you. They they, they both serve the same end. They both are intended to entice people to worship the Lamb and to serve Him only. The intent is to bring people to repentance. We see this in Revelation 16, 8 to 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, causing it to scorch everyone with its fire. Everyone who was burned by this blast of heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over all these plagues. They did not repent of their sins and turn to God and give him glory. 
That's after the fourth bowl. And then we see the fifth bowl, the same thing. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. His subjects ground their teeth in anguish and they cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. But they did not repent for their evil deeds for their evil deeds and turn to God. The point of God allowing hardship in our lives is to actually turn our hearts towards him. And when these plagues are happening, they echo the plagues of the Exodus. And in the same way that Pharaoh hardened his heart during those plagues, there are some people that harden their hearts during the hardship and during judgment. We see that the people of God had opportunities to repent all along. And this is why God has been so slow in bringing finalities because he wants all people to come to a life-saving relationship with him. And so there's a couple of notes about judgment that I want to make. The, The intent of the judgment in Revelation is to bring people to repentance, as we just said. The intent of God's apparently slow response to injustice so if you remember, some of the people of God are saying, God, why are you so slow in responding and making everything right? The reason that is given of why, why God is so slow in responding is to allow as many people as possible to come to repentance. During the trumpets, we see that many people do come to repentance, if you remember, not because of the judgments, because along with the judgments, the people of God become witnesses for the Lamb. And so the people of God have a role to play in others coming to repentance. Uh, by testifying to who Jesus is and what he's done. Many of the judgments that happen in Revelation is, are done by God allowing people to feel the consequences of sin in the world. God allows it to happen. But when we get to the finality of the judgment that we see, it's God directly bringing de- judgment and bringing history as we know it to its conclusion. And so God allows it, and then God brings finality to the judgment. This is what we see in the seven bowls. It's kind of like, um, you know, I coach basketball and throughout the game, you have the opportunity as a coach to call timeouts, right? A timeout is different than times up, right? During the game, you're calling timeout because you're trying to rally your team and help them win. And, and you're trying to strategize and there's timeouts and there's timeouts and there's timeouts. And we see in Revelation that there's timeouts. There's lots of timeouts where God is saying, take a look, open your eyes. This is the message of Revelation. Open your eyes, see what's really going on. Worship the way of the lamb. Follow the way of lamb, worship the lamb. Timeout, timeout, timeout. But there becomes a point in the course of history where time's up, where the game's over, where there's a finality. And so when we get to the end of the judgments in Revelation 16 and into 17, we realize that time's up in history. Uh, And we don't know what that point is, but we know the reason that we're waiting, again, is because God is loving and patient and he wants all people to come to repentance. And we also see when you look at the text that it's all about worship. Read again from 14, Worship him who made the heavens the earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. Anyone who worships the beast in a statue or who accepts his mark on their forehead on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. The smoke of the torment will rise forever and ever and they will have no relief day or night for they have worshipped the beast in his statue and have accepted the mark of his name. And so it's all about worship. And as we saw last week, we see the dragon and the two beasts. These are put forward as the enemies of God. The dragon and the beast are the enemies of God. And this is critical for us to understand that people, people are not the enemy of God. People are not the enemy of God. The dragon is, 
and the dragon-manipulated powers of the beasts are. And we know that the dragon and the beast will be defeated. We're going to see that in the coming chapters. But for those who are intent on worshiping the beast, they will share in the destiny of the beast. For those who are intent on worshiping the lamb, they will share in the destiny of the lamb. That's what we see as it unfolds. That we become like what we worship. We align with that that we worship, with who the person is that we worship. And so if you are worshiping the beast, you align and become more beastly and share in the destiny of the beast. If you worship the lamb, you become more like the lamb and share in the destiny of the lamb. This is the trajectory that we see happening. And this is why worship is critically important to the book of Revelation, because it's who we worship. It's not, will you worship? We were made to worship. Part of being human is being made to worship. Even people say that they have no God. They have a God. They're their own God. We worship. We give our allegiance. We give our lives. We give our affection to all sorts of things. The book of Revelation is calling us to give our affection and our allegiance to the Lamb above all else. And the promise is that when we do that, we will overcome and that we will share in the destiny of the Lamb in the New Jerusalem as we'll read about in a few weeks. And so all of this is referred to in chapter 14 as good news. How is it good news? How is judgment good news? It seems like bad news. It seems like hard news. We often think the gospel is this individual thing about how we get right with God or how we get to heaven, but uh, the individual aspect of the gospel isn't false. It's just not complete. The gospel, the good news itself, particularly as we see in the book of Revelation, is cosmic. It is global. God is putting back to right everything that went wrong. God is healing the world. God is calling people to be part of the healed world. And so why do we not think that this is good news? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons, but let's start with this. We probably have a skewed picture of what God, of what love is. In 1 John 4, 8, we read that God is love. This is one of the most um, profound statements in the entire Bible, that God is love. In his essence, he is love. But our culture says that love is God. And it sounds like the same thing, but it's not. Because when we say God is love, we recognize that God defines what love is. God, the essence of our being, defines what love is. When we say love is God, and we define what love is, we end up defining what God is like. Love in our world simply means acceptance and tolerance. And let's be honest, that's, that's actually not love. Acceptance and tolerance is not love, it's just apathy. And apathy and indifference is the opposite of love. Apathy and indifference is not love. And so we have to be careful not to define love and then project that onto God, but instead look at God and say that God is love and how God acts shows us what love is like. The love of the Bible, the love that we see in Jesus is this passionate love, this jealous love, this, this vicious love that is not willing to let anything get in the way of, of his plans and those that he loves. I remember a time when I was um, a kid, I was about in junior high, coming to a profound understanding of how much my dad loved us as kids. We were out playing hockey on the street, the street in Clarny. 
There's only one. No, there's no more. Um, we're out playing hockey on the street in front of our house. Uh, me and my older brother, uh, I think my younger brother was there too, but so the three of us brothers playing hockey, street hockey. Yes, I know. Some of you can't believe Matt played hockey. Yeah, I had shoes on. Uh, you don't want to see the hockey skates on. Uh, we're playing hockey on the street and our neighbor, uh, or a few, few, few doors down to where we lived, came by and he said to my brother, he said, uh, give me your stick. And my brother's like, no, we're playing hockey. And he said, give me your stick. He's like, no. And this guy took my brother, ripped the stick out of his hand, threw him onto the pavement in front of our house and started putting his boots to him on the street outside of our house. Uh, just for a reference point, this, uh, uh, the kids in that family had also put their own dad in the hospital multiple times. They're a very violent family. Um, and so my, my brother gets beat up outside the doors of her house. My dad comes home. He hears about what happened. Um, and there's this holy rage that I see in my dad that I have only ever seen once. And this was the moment. Um, and he got silent and I saw he was resolute and he walked out of our door and we walked and walked out our door, walked down the street, a few houses and he walked, didn't even knock, just walked into the house, the next house. Um, and the kid or the teenager that beat up my older brother ran. And this is what my dad tells me. I don't actually know what happened in the house, but this is what I'm told. Ran from my dad and hid under his bed in his room. Uh, and this is the extent of, that I know of the story. Um, I don't know what my dad said. I don't know words came out of his mouth. Uh, it's not for me to know. Uh, but I, but when my dad came back, I realized that's not a man I want to mess with. That's not a man. That, that's not a man whose kids I would want to mess with. Uh, and I came away from that moment being like, my dad loves me because love confronts. Love is not apathetic. Love is not indifferent. When you love something, when you're passionate about something, you are willing to do whatever it takes to protect it. And we can think about that in a, in a somewhat funny personal story, but let's think about it on a global cosmic level. You know, SunWest has been involved in missions internationally for a long time. One of the places that we've been involved is in the Myanmar or Burma. Um, and... Thailand area. They've been in a 73-year civil war for 73 years. Right now, there's one, there's one and a half million internally displaced people and over one million people that are displaced in the neighboring countries. The wealth and the power of Burma or Myanmar is concentrated within only 400 families who are controlling and manipulating what is happening. The dragon manipulated power of the two beasts working together. If they were to read Revelation 14, it would sound like bad news. Right? If those 400 families read Revelation 14, it sounds like bad news. But what about the 53 million people outside of those 400 million that are scared and running for their lives? What about the 53 million people that have watched their own family members be kidnapped, be murdered? What about the 53 million people that have their food and supplies taken away from them? 
the 53 million people that are left would read Revelation 14 and say, this sounds like wonderful news. You mean there's a God that cares enough about the injustices and the pain and the evil in this world that he's going to come and make everything right? I cannot wait for the day. Because the love of God is jealous. It's passionate. And you better not get in the way of God and that which he loves. And so I think our world needs love that is more than comfort. We need love that is also confrontation. We need to have an understanding of love that is, yes, comfort for those who are afflicted, for those that are suffering, that God comes and he calls us and he comforts us and he heals us and he redeems us and he gives us new identity as his kids. But there's also the love of God that shows up and he confronts evil. He confronts everything that's intent on destroying what he's trying to do in the world and he confronts it. This is part of the good news. This is good news. And I think for many of us who live in a world of privilege and wealth and power, we have a hard time with judgment text because we've lost sight of how good this news is for most of the world. Perhaps only those who have lived for a generation under a desperately cruel and inhumane regime or empire can begin to understand why these chapters have been written. But perhaps, even for us, that when we take a step back, we're going to realize that this justice of God is part of the good news of God. This is part of the reason why Son of us has so many trips and we cross barriers and borders and boundaries and hear the stories of other people that don't live like us because we need to be reminded of the good news and what God is doing in the world and how we're supposed to be a part of it. All of this that we read, even though it maybe feels like hard news, is actually good news for those who have lived in a world of horror, who have lived under the regime of the beasts. God is going to sort it all out in the end and he's going to purge the world of evil and injustice, and this is great news for most of the world. The love of God necessitates the just action of God, and his judgment and his mercy are not mutually exclusive. They're not opposites, and we have a tendency, maybe in the West, to to make them opposites, but they're not. They actually go together. They're two sides of the same coin. I was listening to a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago, and I, I, I came across this term, reciprocal inhibition, How many of you guys have heard of this term? For anyone who's in the medical field, you've probably heard of this. Um, You know, I failed grade 10 science, and so there's no way I would have heard of this unless someone told me about it. Um, But reciprocal inhibition describes the relaxation of muscles on one side of a joint to accommodate the contraction of muscles on the other side of the joint. It's also known as reflexive antagonism. And so everybody go like this. Hello. Hello. Um, so this is reciprocal inhibition as your muscle, as your bicep contracts, your tricep relaxes. And as your tricep contracts, your bicep relaxes. This reciprocal inhibition allows us to move between our quadriceps and our hamstrings. It allows us to walk. Reciprocal inhibition is necessary for movement and action And I would just like to say that I think mercy and justice, they're two sides of the same coin. They're reciprocal inhibition. They are the muscles of God that the way that he moves in our world, 
They're not opposites. We can see the movement of God between these two characteristics. God is love and God is holy. God comes in mercy and God comes in judgment. It has to be. It has to be that way. To have a God without justice would, to, would be to say that God isn't truly love. And to have a God that can't bring justice would be to say that God isn't powerful. But we know that through the scriptures, the God is all powerful and he is all loving and he comes in mercy and judgment. And this is how he moves. The judgment of God is the justice of God for those who are unwilling to follow the way of the lamb and align themselves with the beasts and the dragons and those that are intent on destroying that which God loves. But the finality of this judgment is at a future point that God in his eternal wisdom knows and why is he waiting to sort everything out? Well, he's waiting because people are not the enemy. He's waiting because he longs for every person tribe, tongue, and nation to worship the Lamb and be a part of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth that we're going to read about in Revelation 21 and 22. And so we need to leave judgment up to God. And I think that's a good word for the church in our day and age, that we need to leave just, we need to leave, leave judgment up to God. We join him in bringing justice, but we leave the judgment up to him. Because justice is in God's hands, we don't have to take judgment into our own hands. So how can the people of God in Revelation be told to endure patiently? How can they be told to to follow the way of lamb, to follow the way of self-sacrifice? Well, they can do that because they trust that God has the last word. So we love our enemies, we pray for him, we fight against the injustices of the dragon and the beast, but we choose to become a foretaste of the new Jerusalem where every tribe and tongue and nation are united under the worship of the Lamb. Where all people are invited to repent, even our enemies. We witness and testify about the Lamb so that others will receive mercy. It's my conviction when we read Revelation 14 to 16 and other passages about judgment and we hear it as bad news, it's likely a sign that we're in we're a position of wealth, comfort, power, and privilege. It's also a sign that we likely need to close the gap between those in our world that don't have a voice who have been forgotten. And I think when we get to know the stories and the names of people who are voiceless and forgotten, we realize that there is good news in judgment. There's good news in justice. There is good news in God coming and finally restoring and making all things right. We'll also realize that in our places of privilege and wealth and power, that we have a role to play as a foretaste of the new Jerusalem, that we have a role to play in helping live lives of justice. So what happens when you have the self-sacrificial agape love of God meet the holiness and the justice of God? When these two worlds collide, what happens? What happens is you have the cross. The cross is what happens. When we look at Jesus and his death and resurrection, we see the holiness of God meeting the mercy and love of God. You see the justice of God and the mercy of God. God who wants to make all things right. He wants to make all things right and keep all those that he's created and called to be with him forever. And so how does he do that? Well, he does that as a holy blameless lamb showing up and dying for the sins of the world and then calling the world to come to him. When we gather around the communion table, 
as the body of Christ. We remember through the cracker or the bread that Christ's body was broken for us. And we remember through the, the grape juice that his blood was spilt for us. Remember that the justice and the mercy of God had a collision on the cross. And because of that, we can come to God blameless, faultless. As Hebrews says, come to his throne with confidence because of who he is and what he's done. And so when we think about judgment, we don't need to be afraid. Because the justice and mercy of God has been shown for what it is on the cross and we can come boldly to him. And so we practice an open communion table. I don't know your story. I don't know where you're coming from. But if you desire to receive the gift of eternal life from the Lamb, if you desire to follow the way of the Lamb, if you desire to make him the King of kings and Lord of lords in your life, the table is for you. The body and the blood of Jesus is for you. And so as the band plays this next song, uh, we, were, we would invite you at any time uh, to get up. There's four stations. If you're at home, we invite you to grab some food and drink uh, from the house. Uh, but during this next worship time, we invite you to go one of the, the four corners. Uh, there's gluten-free options there. And as you come to the table, someone will say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And then this is the blood of Christ spilled for you. When you eat this, when you drink this, remember him. Remember what he has done that he has been merciful, that he has made a way for us. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your justice. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your justice because we look around in the world and we think there has to be justice. If there's a loving, all-powerful God, there has to be justice. But we thank you for your mercy, Lord, because we knew that if you were if you were to be completely just justice without mercy, that Lord, that we couldn't even come to your presence. And so, Lord, we thank you that you're holy and that you are loved. We thank you that you paid the penalty for sin and that you don't turn away from sin and you don't ignore it, but you dealt with it. And so we thank you that we can bring our sin to you and that we can be made new, that we can receive the forgiveness of sins because of what you've done. We can be confident of the victory over evil and sin because you ra- we were raised three days later. We can live in the present with confidence, with endurance, with faith. Because we know, Lord, that at the end of the day, at the end of the world as we know it, you are just. You are loving. You are in the business of making all things right and calling all people to yourself. And we thank you for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell and live in the house of the Lord forever. And so uh, let's just close in prayer. God, we thank you that you pursue us and that you pursue us with your mercy and your justice. And we trust you with those things in your hand to balance that and that we could be ambassadors and representatives of your kingdom, experiencing that and living that out and bringing that to our world. 
Just pray that you would watch over us, walk with us through this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for coming. And again, just want to remind you that if you're looking, if you'd like someone to pray for you this morning, we've got prayer teams here at the front and we'd love to pray with you. Uh, We will see you next week.